Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is our 100th podcast, and to celebrate that, we have Dr. Peter Pronovost with us from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Pronovost is a professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins and is also in the Department of Health Policy and Management, uh, all in Baltimore, Maryland. He is also the director, the medical director for the Center for Innovations in Quality Patient Care and director for the Division of Adult Critical Care. Dr. Pronovost has had a busy year with uh, lots of exciting things happening. He was named as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World in 2008, in part for his development of the ICU checklist. Also in 2008, he was awarded the MacArthur Fellowship, otherwise known as the Genius Grant, which rewards those who, quote, show exceptional merit and promise for continued and enhanced creative work. We will be discussing some of these accomplishments, as well as his most recent project, Stop BSI, which aims to empower champions at the local level to implement checklists in the prevention of catheter-related bloodstream infections. Dr. Pronovost has been with us before, and we're very, very happy to have him here with us again today on the iCritical Care podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, Peter, I thought we'd uh, begin, and I find this to be very helpful, and the, the listeners seem to enjoy it very much, to allow you to talk for a few moments about how you transitioned from someone who was excited uh, about being an anesthesia critical care doctor to someone who has been a champion of patient safety, both nationally and internationally, and perhaps let us know how your career evolved. It's been a journey. I first had my eyes open to the need to improve systems when I was a fourth-year medical student at, at Johns Hopkins and spent a couple semesters working at a mission hospital in Nigeria, you know, and I would have hundreds of patients waiting every night for me, and, and, uh, and they would have burns and fractures, and I realized that uh, with my two hands alone, I was never going to make much of an impact, but I had to start to work to change the system so either these injuries didn't occur or we had some more effective strategies for dealing with them. My father uh, then unfortunately died of uh, a mistake. He had a cancer that wasn't diagnosed timely, and he uh, came home with hospice to die, but he died in horrible, writhing pain. And I became convinced from him that patients deserve better than our system gives them right now. And then I went on to train in, in critical care and and uh, did a PhD in clinical research, but my focus was really on bringing valid clinical research methods to quality and safety or to health policy because there was um, a real void of science in that field. And then perhaps my most daunting task in safety has been to answer a question of a little girl, Josie King, who died at my hospital from completely preventable mistakes. And and on the fourth year anniversary of that little girl's death, her mother came up to me and said, Peter, could you tell me that Josie's less likely to die now than she would four years ago? And she died of essentially a catheter infection and unrecognized dehydration. But, and I started telling her all the stuff we're doing. 
or have this program and that. And she abruptly cut me off and said, Peter, I didn't ask what you're doing. I asked if you're safer and how do you know? And the sad reality is I couldn't give her an answer. I don't think the U.S. healthcare system could give her an answer. And I fundamentally believe she deserves one. Just to take a step back, you pointed out something that I, I think is fascinating as an academic intensivist is is you you felt that there was a void in the field, um, but 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 one could think that that would be make it intimidating and more difficult because uh, in watching all the the papers you published, you've sort of created this field where the paradigm for promotion and and what was considered to be academic excellence is very difficult, and and this sort of dovetails into some of the problems with the OHRP. How much is of this is quality improvement? How much of this is research, etc.? want to talk about that for a couple minutes? I sure do. And let me tackle that in two points because you're right. In some sense, I mean, we, we almost did create a new field because when I did my public health degree, you know, I was trained to be a clinical trialist. I mean, like, you know, many academic people to do drug trials in the ICU. And, and I created my own program because I had free tuition. I did a joint degree in health policy and management and then kind of combined those two tools. And when I published my thesis showing, you know, you may remember that showing that the benefit of intensive is staffing. There was a hunger from the public and regulators for what I would call kind of valid outcomes research, you know, outcomes research that was practical, that could be applied and inform policy. And it made me realize that we have to start training people in this ability to do this. And it caused some tensions because the current many people who were doing quality at the time were measuring pathetically. I mean, you know, we were making inferences about improvements that that were at best invalid, and and I just wasn't comfortable as a researcher to make statements that I didn't think were supported by the evidence. What I tried to do was to create what I call the sweet spot in the middle, and that is to have the quality improvement people be a little more rigorous in what they do so at the end of the day we can answer Sorrell's question and the academic community be a little more applied so we design interventions that they could actually work in the real world and try to get those two communities to meet in in the middle has been a big part of our of our work now we ran into trouble as you alluded to in doing this because in many sense this is a whole new field and even the regulatory requirements haven't matured to to a sufficient extent. So when we did our Michigan study, the one that was published in the New England Journal, uh, we submitted it to the Johns Hopkins IRB who deemed that it wasn't uh, research, it was quality improvement, so go ahead and do it. We were only collecting uh, de-identified data, that is each hospital only submitted their number of infections and the number of catheter days. Well, after the study was published, someone filed an anonymous complaint with OHRP saying, hey, this study violated research rules, and we got a, frankly, rather threatening letter from OHRP saying we should have gotten patient-level consent and that each hospital should have gotten their own IRB. And and as you know, that IRBs exist to protect, and and rightfully so, to protect patients from, from research. In our case, we were asking docs to wash their hands, and there was no I mean, the, the, the data collection qualified as, as a de-identified data set. But I think because we used research language, which you need to to get it published in the New England Journal, it was interpreted as, as a clinical trial or a clinical study more than on the quality side. I mean, I just want to jump in and make a couple points. One is, is that the whole issue surrounding the OHRP really emphasizes my point, and I guess it's a sad one, about how much this is uncharted territory. 
and that you really were developing and are, I would imagine still in the process of developing a paradigm to discuss this concept and, and to, to reemphasize what you've done, which I just think is so dramatic, is, you know, we're taught in medical school a lot of facts, a lot of details. And the things that we aren't taught, I mean, I went to Hopkins and back in the 90s, early 90s, focus on patient safety well, our whole concept was to learn everything we could as physicians. There was a lot to learn so that our patients would do well. And this concept of superimposing upon that or adding to that, this concept of patient safety is new. And I guess that's one of the reasons that government regulatory agencies are having so much trouble. Exactly right. And and that you actually measure if it works or not. Right Now they're saying, oh, my God, now you're actually measuring things. Does this make it science? Well, I say, well, I mean, I don't care what you do. You have to look at what the risks that are imposed by it. But it's something we should have been doing for decades. Bright light at the end of this is we recently got a contract from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality to work with uh, a branch of the American Hospital Association to put this program in 10 more states. And, and we really hope to make this as the Stop BSI program, to make it uh, a national program. And so I called the director of OHRP and said, I don't want to be held after the fact to some standards that I don't know of up front. Could you please clarify in writing what you're going to hold us accountable for, for IRB for this study, so that we could jump through that hoop and we don't have this unfortunate, you know, second guessing after we uh, believe we're complying or the institution believes they're complying with the rules. And though initially a fair bit of reluctance, as you can imagine, to put things in writing, we, with some support from Congress and some pressure, got a letter in writing that essentially said this isn't research, doesn't even need to go to the Johns Hopkins IRB, and states don't need to do any IRB at all. I mean, just hearing about how the scope of this is, is broadening, and I guess we'll talk about Stop BSI in a second, is there a is there a, a idea of forming a separate, independent sort of patient safety corporation that you're going to be doing? I mean, it sounds like it's getting larger and larger, and it's not something that one one person can do by themselves because both there are there's the technical aspects of implementing this and then the separate quote unquote research or academic issues getting it published can you talk for a few minutes about your your infrastructure of your group I sure get so our group right now is an infrastructure within Johns Hopkins and that's in the, within the department of anesthesia and critical care and it's uh, an interdisciplinary group there's probably oh I don't know maybe 15 or 20 people now about Half are clinicians with some methodological training. The other half are a variety of social scientists, uh, human factors experts, biostatisticians, health services researchers who bring a diverse lens to it. I uh, believe me, have thought a lot about creating a uh, corporation uh, about this. I, with my public health background, I think this stuff has to stay in the not-for-profit space. I, I think it, it ought to be a, a countrywide or an international resource. And, for example, this Stop BSI program, a national effort, I also think that if any one group owns it, it's going to die. So it's really in this more social entrepreneur model where we are simply creating a website that we're bringing consumers union in, we're bringing insurers in, we're bringing professional societies in, we're bringing hospitals in, we're bringing state hospital associations in. Now we've partnered with the World Health Organization to bring whole countries in. But I think if anyone owns it, it becomes too much of an ego issue. That that what I believe our role as academic docs 
is that we bring technical work to these programs. And by technical work, I mean we help summarize the evidence, we help identify barriers, and we develop measurement systems, so both measures and databases to measure. And then we partner with as many levers as we could to help this, this get going. So with individual hospitals who have to then take this technical work and fit it to their culture and resources, to consumer groups who help drive organizations to implement this stuff, to payers who both make resources available and help people accountable, and to various agencies within the federal government to either keep funding this type of work. But we, I almost view this as a pharmaceutical pipeline, where you could think of it as the way we run our shop is uh, almost like drug development, where phase one is you kind of get summarizing of evidence and measures uh, for a program, so say reducing MRSA. Phase two would be you might pilot test that in a small group of healthcare organizations. Phase three is you would launch broadly um, partnering with as many levers as you could to drive this, including payment policy reform. But the difference from what's going on currently is payment policy reform is going on often devoid of science, and it's just going to drive all this work underground, and it's going to be a shell game, where in the reverse, where the science is driving the payment policy reform. That Yes, once we find things, uh, we ought to be driving healthcare system reform, and we ought to pull as, get consumers involved and pull as many levers as we could, but we need some seed investments to fund this pipeline. What would be the relationship with you and your group to things like the IHI, the federal government, the Joint Commission, um, because it, it can often be confusing. Um, you know, a hospital may voluntarily choose to implement an IHI regulation. At some point, the Joint Commission will do something that will not be voluntary, or or uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services may do something with pay for performance. Can you talk for a few minutes about that, just to maybe add some clarity about how you sort of work with these different agencies? Sure, and we work with all of those different groups. Obviously, we're not a regulatory body. We're just a research body. Our role is to to help mature the science. So let me give you an example. After we did Michigan, we asked the hospitals, and, and they in their ICU, they said, well, we wanted some programs on palliative care. We may want some programs on MRSA, VRE, and we want to have a surgery program. So then we take that back and we say, okay, well, let's design a program that has what the evidence is to do to prevent this, these harms, what the barriers are, and what are valid measures of harm, and let's work together to, to pilot test them. And then if they work, let's put them out you know, th- throughout the state. Obviously, when we do that, like for instance, our budgeting project, regulators of the Joint Commission or CMS now may pick up these programs and decide you know, that they want to incorporate them as part of their program. You know, my sense is that if we have to make sure that these programs are wise, that they achieve the goals that they're really intended to, and that really is only going to happen when we when they're founded on some some practical yet robust science. There are a cadre of clinicians that would say two things. Well, they're asking us to do these patient safety things without providing us the resources to do it, and you know, this issue of patient safety is is not silly, but it's different from what our perspective is. I'm a busy clinician. I'm trying to go through all the laboratories and synthesize what the diagnosis is. And, you know, this isn't really 
something that I should be doing. This should be part of the infrastructure of the hospital. And, you know, why am I as the clinician being blamed when, you know, I didn't, you know, I did everything right putting in this line and it got infected anyway and it's not really an error. Uh, there is, there are a cadre of clinicians that would be the counterpoint to your argument. Nobody wants to be against patient safety, but the focus is you know, why something like that letter came about. There are some negative issues, maybe if you want to adjust those. Sure, and I, and I completely agree with you and, and that perspective. And you know, I don't know who sent that letter in. I think, to be honest, it was more of a consent issue than, a, than the burden of doing this. But, you know, I'm, uh, I still spend 30% of my time in the trenches in the ICU. Uh, you know, I know that some patients are going to get infected despite the best things that I do and it's infuriating to be held accountable for that. I, what role that I try to take, in, and, and, and I say, you know, really it's my role as trying to bring people together to help solve problems, not that I have the answers, that I'm just the convener and have the courage to kind of put the challenge on the table. But those docs that you mentioned are absolutely right, that if the hospital doesn't buy chlorhexidine, they shouldn't be held accountable for for, for doing this. There has to be a system perspective. What the mindset has to be, though, and I don't think we've articulated it well, is that rather than an either-or thing, you know, it's either physicians or the hospital and the system, recognizing that physicians are a vital part of that system, that we're all in this together. We, we know we all want the best outcomes. Some of that may mean I have to give up some autonomy as a physician to use best practices. And that really conflicts with our self-esteem. Quite frankly, I think as a field, we've often asked physicians to give up autonomy in very unwise ways, that without being sure that we're not exposing patients to greater risk. At the same time, when things are wise, like this checklist that clearly has profound benefits, and at least as far as we know, pretty trivial risks, then they have to be giving up their autonomy and they have to be willing to say, you know, I need to be engaged in what I'm calling informed or shared decision making, not just I'm omnipotent and I know it all because the science has gotten so advanced that that's not a realistic goal anymore. Well, we're sort of getting near the end of the podcast and I did want to actually conclude with our with our last talking point, which again is controversial, but you seem to articulate these incredibly well, so I thought I'd give you an opportunity. Uh, Dr. Robert Wachter from UCSF and yourself have written uh, some interesting publications, both of you as national and international patient safety advocates, yet disagreeing with some of the, uh, I guess, pay, pay for performance issues. And the specific example that you discussed in your manuscript was this door to needle antibiotic time for community-acquired pneumonia, where you articulated nicely that you felt it was going to artificially change practice to comply with a set of guidelines and perhaps overcalling pneumonias and might have its own downside. And if you could sort of expand upon that topic, because again, I think it's another area that sticks in the craw of some clinicians where they may be forced to do things they don't believe in. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that's absolutely right. And what, again, what I've been trying to do is to be transparent and say, put some sunshine in this, that if we're going to have payment policies or healthcare policies, we have to make sure that they're wise and they're grounded in science, at least the, the best known science. And some of what we've been asked to do, I don't believe is such. So some of these policies of not paying for, quote, preventable complications like a DVT or like pneumonia 
when we neither know how to measure them nor know the extent to which they're preventable, I don't think are going to end up where we all want to be, which is improve patient outcomes and, and reduce costs. Rather, I think we have to say, let's, let's be transparent. How accurate are we actually measuring these and how much error is there going to be? And, and what do we know about the degree to which if you use best practice, you can prevent them? And when something like catheter-related blood sugar infections, where we show you know, the vast majority of these, yes, we could prevent, then it's wise to align payment policy that. But we, one of the things I've learned, and, and it's very evident that whenever you change a system, you may defend against some mistakes, but you will inevitably introduce new ones. And what we have to do as practicing physicians is try to be aware of what those new hazards are proactively so that the net impact on our patient is positive rather than negative. So just, what, by changing, just by changing the system, you mean? It's exactly right. So even, you know, you think of, I don't know if you're a hospital put in physician order entry, right? But it's a right. tool that defends against some mistakes like handwriting errors but introduces a whole new cadre of errors, like choosing one out of a list of many, you know, from these drop-down right. menus that predictably, I'm going to ch- select the wrong concentration now simply because I'm human. And what I've seen when you do things wisely, like that project that we did in Michigan, you not only prevent the needless suffering, death, and costs of care, but that you put joy back into the practice of medicine and you build capacity and enthusiasm to tackle the next healthcare problems. And and there's a long list of ills that we need our leadership to help tackle and address. And and, and I hope the critical care community uh, continues its its commitment to safety and takes up some of those challenges. So so patient safety without physician punishment. Exactly right. Right. I like the way you phrase that. Oh, good. I, I may have to borrow that quote from you. <laughs> oh, that'll be good from Rich Savell, MD. Right. <laughs> Another Hopkins alum. Well, I'd like to uh, thank Dr. Peter Pronovos for joining us today uh, as part of the podcast. He is currently a full professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He is the medical director for the Center for Innovations in Quality Patient Care, as well as being the director for the Division of Adult Critical Care and this year won the MacArthur Fellowship Genius Grant and was considered one of the most influential people in 2008 by Time Magazine. Thank you very much, Dr. Pronovost, for joining us today. Thank you. It's really a delight, and uh, have a great day. This concludes the 100th podcast of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you all so very much for listening and being supportive and allowing the iCritical Care podcast to be a success. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. An email subscription service will let you know when new podcasts have been posted to the SCCM website. Please visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City.
practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org for more information.